In Black and White is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. Our subscribers get access to the full Herald Sun website, including companion articles and photographs to this podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support it, click on heraldsun.com.au forward slash I-B-A-W to go to the new In Black and White page and click on any article to begin. He liked to fight the police. He used to dare them to fight him. Even though he's covered by a warder um, with a rifle, there was a rifle being pointed at him and there were threats that he'd be shot. He ran along the corridor. He couldn't get a ticket. They didn't want the most violent man in Australia on a long journey overseas. I'm Jen Kelly and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. This is episode two of our six-part series on the forgotten gangsters of Melbourne with historian Michael Shelford, the creator and guide for Melbourne historical crime tours. Gangsters ruled the streets of inner-city Melbourne and the inner suburbs from the 1890s to the 1930s, and attacking cops on the beat was one of their favourite pastimes. Police had their work cut out for them, dealing with criminal gangs who earned a crust from sly grog, prostitution, standover tactics and thievery. Last week we heard the story of William Buck, a prize fighter who became one of the most violent men Victoria Police ever encountered. And today Michael Shelford returns to tell us the story of Percy Ramage, who was quite possibly the most violent prisoner in Australia's history. The prison authorities didn't want him in their jails. The health authorities didn't want him in their asylums. The police didn't want him on the streets. And the magistrates delayed his sentencing after one trial in the hope that he would fulfil his promise and leave Australia for South Africa. But the ship owners didn't want him on their boats. Welcome back to the podcast, Michael. Thank you. So in what sense was he potentially Australia's most violent prisoner? While he was in prison, and particularly for the longest term that he did, which was five years, um, he was just um, seemingly uncontrollable. He began by attacking prison guards, wardens, attacking fellow prisoners. And when they um, tried to shackle him and um, put him in isolation, etc., he'd always find some way to be able to attack them again. Um, He caused a real headache for the prison system. So where does his story begin? Where did he come from? He was actually born under the name William Edwards. So Percy Ramage became the main name that he used, but it really was an alias. He was born in Geelong in 1875, and he was part of a, a large family, 13 kids. Um, his, his father was described as a railway man of Herculean proportions. He himself, the father, was a hard drinker and a hard hitter, but avoided trouble mostly, apart from a couple of charges of assault, including one where he um, attacked a police officer for entering his local pub. Percy's mother, she was a a loving mum. Um, She stuck up for her kids no matter what sort of trouble they got into and we'll learn a bit more about that side of her character as we go along today as well. Generally, the police saw that his parents were respectable, well-behaved citizens. Were they a poor family or were they well off? Well, they were considered to be quite well off and and mostly that was because they um, actually owned their own house, which must have been a little bit unusual at that point of time for working class families. So when did Percy Ramage first start getting into trouble? In his late teens, and and that was in Geelong, um, downtown Geelong. He was running with what they used to call a larrikin push. So a a larrikin push, as we've probably learnt before in in previous um, episodes of your podcast, 
was like a, a gang, a street gang of the era. So um, larrikin was like a street hooligan or a thug, and the word push was used in place of a gang in Australia in those days. The gang that he was hanging around with in Geelong had a, a real reputation, and, and what they used to do would be to um, demand drinks in local hotels and that sort of thing, and beat up the publican if they wouldn't get the drinks. In fact, early in his career in 1895, uh, a police sergeant described him as being... Uh, direct quote, a larrikin of the first water. Um, in other words, it's about as pure a form of larrikin as you're ever going to see. And in that year, 1895, he was sent twice to prison for assaulting members of the public and the police. In, on one occasion, his mother offered a, a one-pound treatment payment for one of the victims in the hope that they dropped the charges, but it wasn't accepted. So after those early days in Geelong, he's ended up in Melbourne, I understand. So what sort of trouble did he get into in Melbourne? Um, we're looking originally at 1897 when he arrives in town, demands free drinks, surprise, surprise from a hotel, um, gets into a lot of trouble, into a, a fight with the police there. Then he's back to Geelong, back to the safety of his parents' home again, which he seemed to do quite a bit throughout his life. More trouble in Geelong. So in 1898, he's at the racetrack. He gets into a um, fight with the police and the police pull out a baton, um, but he actually disarms them by clenching the baton in his teeth and he wouldn't let go. So his temper's getting really uncontrollable. By 1899, um, he's living in Melbourne and he's actually hanging around the Little Lawn District, Melbourne's inner city red light district in the slums. And he was actually considered to be the head of a larrikin push by that point of time. A lot of police used to patrol that part of Melbourne, so he was always seen to be getting in trouble. He, he liked to fight the police. He used to dare them to fight him. Um, in 1899, he actually led his gang into the Black Eagle Hotel. Now, the Black Eagle Hotel is still there in downtown Melbourne today. It's a heritage building at 42 to 44 Lonsdale Street. He led eight of his gang into the bar and they demanded free drinks. That was what they used to do, the larrikin pushes in those days. The publican said no, but the publican also sent a messenger out the back way to alert the police. And the gang kind of worked out what had happened. They realised the police were on their way, so the gang went into Black Eagle Lane, which was later called Little Leichhardt Street, right next door to the Black Eagle Hotel, and they took up position behind a pile of old bricks and they waited in ambush for the police. So the police entered the lane um, and they were met with a barrage of bricks, now, on top of the pile of bricks, Ramage was standing there and he had a, a brick in each hand and he said, come on, you expletive, I will deal with you. So the police officer had to um, go away and get reinforcements. When he came back, Ramage was gone. For that, he got picked up later and um, he ended up receiving um, one month in prison. In, in court, um, the, the judge actually said to Ramage, what are you? And Ramage replied, a shearer. Then the police prosecutor interjected with, he's a city shearer. He's been convicted five times for assault and seven other convictions are recorded against him. So the judge gave him one month in jail. And then after that, the police prosecutor said to Ramage again, what are you? And he said, a shearer. And then the police prosecutor said, what is your place of residence? And he said, the Footscray Ranges. And of course, the whole court erupted in laughter. So he was a bit of a smart aleck, wasn't he? Yeah, he was definitely that. So our last episode was about William Bark. Can you tell us about the friendship between Percy Ramage and William Bark? Yeah, they, they um, became, without trying to sound corny, they became thick as thieves. They used to hang around all the time and it was arguable which was the most aggressive towards the police. Um, Percy Ramage actually ended up with the nickname as uh, being known as the police puncher. 
um, and he, he dared the police to take him on. In 1899, um, in the last episode, we spoke about a police officer who was struck over the head. William Buck lost his eye when the beer bottle smashed. Well, a person who struck him over the head is the one we're talking about now, Percy Ramage. For doing that, he actually received five years hard labour and he was sentenced to 15 strokes of the cat of nine tails. And how did Percy Ramage take to being in prison? Um, not very well at all. That's when he um, soon became known as the most violent prisoner in Australia. Um, that's when he got really out of control. He, he was an extraordinarily strong man. He had an extreme hatred of authority and he was constantly surrounded by waters. So it was driving him crazy. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winter? (laughs) Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. So what are some of the worst examples of his prison violence? Well, early on he actually was sentenced to um, six months being shackled in leg irons and that was for attacking a warden with a long-handled broom. That doesn't sound so bad, but that was after the warden had tried to prevent him mercilessly beating a fellow prisoner. On another occasion he was being guided back to his cell by two warders and he saw another warder who he clashed before, with before and he disliked immensely and he broke free and he ran for that other warder and threatened his life. As he was running, he managed to cross across um, to a workyard where a prisoner was chopping some wood and he uh, managed to get the axe off the prisoner and then he stood there daring the warders to try and take him. He ran again and um, he was, even though he was covered by a warder um, with a rifle, there was a rifle being pointed at him and there were threats that he'd be shot, he ran along the corridor what he didn't realise that um, the warders were able to actually shut off a door at the other either end of the corridor and, and trap him. And eventually he calmed down. They were able to talk him down. And they um, took him up into his cell. They had him in handcuffs in his cell. Um, they managed to get him to his cell. And in his cell, he attempted to cut his own throat with a broken light bulb. The warden actually saw it occurring and was able to prevent it happening. And then he was placed in handcuffs. The next day, um, they decided that warders had better go into his cell and search him. And when they went in there, he managed to escape the cell. Um, they chased him. He stayed ahead of them up three flights of stairs until he got to the top balcony, which was 40 feet above the ground. And there he attempted to leap to his death. But his handcuffs got caught on a railing. And there he was, dangling 40 feet above the ground until they came to his rescue. It sounds like he was almost uncontrollable. So how did the prison system deal with all this? They ended up getting him medically examined and the doctors that examined him found him to be insane. So he was transferred to the Yarra Bend Lunatic Asylum. So the prison authorities were very happy to get rid of him. But the asylum doctors um, were not so happy to receive him. They did their own examinations and they decided that he was sane, just a person with an extreme temper. So... Um, he got sent back to the prison system. He ended up with his own cell at Pentridge Prison, which was, um, he was kept restrained and kept under observation. Do you think he was actually mentally ill? Or do we know what caused his terrible temper? I I think myself that he was mentally ill. Um, He did actually speak to the doctors about hearing voices outside of his cell at night time. 
but the the psychologist or psychiatrist at the time thought that a lot of his behaviour was just to get himself into better conditions, that he wanted to be in the asylum rather than in prison. They believe that the attempts on his own life, etc., could have been staged as well. That was their opinion. Who knows? But um, one of the psychiatrists, when examining him, saw that there was a scar on his head and a depression under the scar, which meant that he'd had a, a severe head injury at some point, and that may have been a contributing factor, but from Ramage's own theory, something that he was actually diagnosed with while he was in prison um, was that he had diabetes and a pretty extreme version of diabetes. And diabetes was not as well understood back in those days as it is today. Ramage's theory was that it was that disease, diabetes, that caused his blood to boil. And he actually said um, that it sent the blood rushing to his brain, at which point he couldn't control his temper. So there's something, there's a a term, medical term today, um, diabetic rage, I'm not a um, medical professional, so I don't understand it well. I did a quick read-up about it. Um, But you never know. That may have been one of the contributing factors to that uncontrollable temper that he had, and they wouldn't have known how to control sugar levels, levels, et cetera, as much back in those days as well, I'd expect. Mm. And did they ever let him out of prison? Well, it looked like he was going to be there for life, really, because he was getting into so much trouble while he was in there that the visiting magistrates would continually add to his sentence. By the time he finished his five-year sentence, he had another two years to go, and 15 months of those two years was to be served in leg irons, um, strapped to a bed. But his mother started to work in the background, so she actually um, she got a petition together. She sent it to the Governor-General of Victoria, and she pled his release on medical grounds. He, he was suffering from really bad kidney disease by this point of time, a lot of that to do with the diabetes. But she also, and, and this was the, the thing that swayed things in his favour, she promised that if he was allowed out, that he'd actually go to South Africa for good. That his brother, who'd served in the Boer War and was still based there in South Africa, um, had a place for him and would look after him. So she said she'd pay his fare. So they they actually then needed to work out a way to get rid of the two years um, extra sentence he'd been served. And so the magistrates visited the jail. And even though he'd been declared sane by the psychiatrists at Yarra Bend Asylum, they decided that he must have been temporarily insane while he made his misdemeanours in prison, and so they just wiped them from his record and he was actually released. So did he make it to South Africa to stay with his brother? No, he didn't. Um, He travelled straight from Pentridge, straight into downtown Melbourne, met up with his friend William Buck that we were talking about earlier. They were standing outside a brothel at 14 Lonsdale Street. Police told them to move along. There was four of them all standing there. Ramage told the police officer to make me. The police officer tried to arrest Ramage. He pulled out his baton. Um, They got the baton out of his hands. He drew his gun and pointed it at Ramage. And instead of running away, Ramage just walked towards him, putting out his arms and said, shoot away. Um, So the, the police officer actually followed his advice and he pulled the trigger. He pulled it three times, but the gun didn't fire. So Ramage is arrested again. When he appears in court, the judge is not impressed. He says, aren't you supposed to have been on the way to South Africa? It's explained that because of all of the coverage in the newspapers of the plan of him moving to South Africa, the shipping companies were aware of it and they decided that he was not allowed on their boats. He couldn't get a ticket. They didn't want the most violent man in Australia on a long journey overseas, having to deal with him themselves. So after that, um, even though the judge was not happy about it, he allowed Ramage off again with a fine. Now, what about his personal life? Was was he married or did he have a partner at all? Yeah, he got married in 1907. Um, so he was 32 at that point of time. He married a 21-year-old 
girl from country Victoria. And after he was married, did he settle down to domestic life? Not so much really. Um, Within five months of getting married, he was in Bendigo with the famous gangster Squizzy Taylor. He was staying at Squizzy Taylor's girlfriend, Dolly Gray's brothel in Mundy Street. There were a bunch of Squizzy's old gang, the Burke Street Rats there. At the time, Bendigo's crime rate had just gone through the roof. Um, There were burglaries, there were safes being blown up and the police thought it must have had something to do with them. They raided the place and they arrested Dolly Gray, Squizzy Taylor, Percy Ramage, in all four men and three women. Um, They found on the premises a burglar's kit. So that was skeleton keys, a jemmy bar, a revolver, etc. I I found it funny that in um, the newspaper coverage they mentioned the atmosphere of the cell that the four men were sharing. So they actually said that there was an impromptu concert um, which was held to lift their spirits, that Percy Ramage recited a poem called How We Beat the Favourite, and that was very well received. And um, it also mentioned that the others chose to sing songs and they weren't quite so popular. So maybe um, Squizzy Taylor didn't have the best singing voice. Um, he got a year in jail for having housebreaking implements in his possession, even though they were just in the house. He actually cl- he actually said to the judge in court, I was not frequenting the premises. He said it was raining outside and I ducked in to get out of the rain. <laughs> the judge didn't believe that. So once Percy Ramage was out of prison, did he and his wife stay together? Yeah, that's, that's where it gets a little bit odd. By this time, um, Percy Ramage's parents had moved to Port Melbourne. So their family house was in Port Melbourne. So Percy Ramage was spending a lot of time there himself, as were other brothers and sisters and his parents, and his wife. So she was actually there. You look at the electoral roll, she's there until 1915, every year. But in 1909, Percy Ramage is in Adelaide. And what the newspapers described as an attractive 23-year-old Melbourne prostitute called Dora Gray. So they're living together, representing themselves as a married couple, Um, she robbed one of her customers. She got two years in jail. And when she received that sentence, she looked at the judge, smiled and said, thank you. So now Percy Ramage is South Australia's problem, not Victoria's. Yeah, but not for long. So he got a job in um, in Adelaide driving a taxi cab. And in 1909, cabs were drawn by a horse. So a horse-drawn vehicle. He's driving this horse-drawn taxi cab around Adelaide, drunk. His behaviour draws the attention of the police. So a constable actually climbed into the seat next to him and put him in handcuffs and then he took the reins of the horse and said to him, we're going down to the police lock-up, you're under arrest. When they were getting close to the station, um, Percy Ramage actually grabbed hold of the reins and yanked them to the left and caused the, um, the taxi cab to go down a different street. And then the two were struggling as the cab's going along the street and eventually Ramage ma- managed to jump out of the cab and, um, and run off. Um, they thought that he wouldn't be able to get too far because he still had his handcuffs on, but he actually made it back to Melbourne on a ship. They actually sentenced him um, while he was absent from the court. The decision they made was that they weren't going to enforce the sentence unless he came back to the state of South Australia. So in other words, they were making sure he'd never come back, otherwise he knew he'd go to jail. There was a way of keeping him out of South Australia. So he was Victoria's problem again? Had he learned his lesson yet? He was New South Wales' problem for a very short time, for about a week. So he's in Albury for about a week and he caused cause problems every, every night and every day. Um, that culminated in him being kicked out of a pub and then after he was kicked out of the pub, he ran up and down the streets with an open pocket knife, uh, threatening to stab whoever it was that kicked him out. So he was fined and released from that, but the very next night he's back in Melbourne causing a scene there. So um, there was a constable who was uh, attracted to a, a disturbance in the city 
Um, when he arrived, he saw Ramage in an absolute rage. He'd taken over a full block of uh, Swanston Street. He was attacking anyone who came near him. He fought two police officers. He took a mouthful of hair out of the head of one of them. Um, he knocked the helmet off the other and he jumped up and down on it. He got five weeks in prison for that, but it doesn't appear on his prison record. I think the prison authorities by then had just stopped bothering to note um, his misdemeanours. And what became of him after that? Well, he died in 1913. He was only 38 years of age um, and he died from kidney disease, chronic nephritis. He was still married at the time, but he hadn't had any kids. And how would you sum up his life? Uh, He lived fast. He died young, I suppose you could say. He wasn't your average crook. Almost all of his convictions were for violence towards the police and others. He seemed to get some honest work here and there, but I mostly think he earned his money from bullying and standover tactics in Little On. So he's an incredibly violent man, perhaps one of the most violent men in Australia's history. But I can't help but wonder whether things could have been different if he'd had access um, to modern treatment as we know it today for his diabetes, his kidney problems, his mental health issues, etc. Well, thank you for sharing another amazing story, Michael. Thank you for having me. If you want to read more about Percy Ramage, you'll find a link to Michael Shelford's story and photos in the show notes to this podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. Written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, produced by Al Tynan and edited by Andrea Thies-Evanson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you want to support this podcast and be notified when each episode comes out, make sure you hit the subscribe button. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.